What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's up, guys? It's your boy, Dylan. I'm here to talk about, once again, BetOnline.ag. BetOnline remains your number one source for all your sports betting this season, everything from NFL and bowl season to eSports. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at BetOnline. BetOnline features live betting, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable. They're the fastest and easiest way for all your betting needs for all your favorite leagues and events. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Just make sure you use our promo code BLEAV, that is capital letters B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. One more time, that is capital letters B-L-E-A-V. BetOnline, where the game starts. And welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Top of Thunder podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Hunzinger, at Thunder Chats. We are part of the Believe Network, and this podcast is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. Now that all the formalities are out of the way, i got to introduce my co-host first. we got feverishly typing at his work. We're looking at the ceiling right now. We've got Alex Troy. What's up, Alex? What is up, man? I'm, I'm just uh, I'm doing two things at once, man, multitasking, so let's go. Love to see it. Love to see it. Uh, also, we've got in the state of Texas, we got uh, he, he's fighting a little bit of a head cold uh, and a bunch of other stuff too. But he's powering through for us. We got Maddie Moles. What's up, Moles? Hey, not a whole lot. Really excited about the festivities that are going to occur this weekend. Um, really excited to watch the game in OKC. Make the pilgrimage back home and uh, hang out with the boys. So um, two. Two more uh, sleeps, and then I get to see all you guys in person, so I'm really excited. There you go, man. Well, hey, without further ado, we'll stop burying the weeds. So joining us today, this is a man that hails from the Big Apple of New York City. He graduated from St. Joseph's University with a degree in English. When he's not making hilarious and true thunder memes for his Twitter, you can read his work on NBA Math or Bleacher Report, as well as listen to him break down the game of basketball in a fun and entertaining way on a hob. Hardwood, Hardwood Knox podcast. I couldn't say that for some reason. Uh, so shout out to Frank Nilakino. Apologies to Jared Allen. Say what's crack a lack and a welcome to the podcast. The certified fantabulous thermonuclear AF Dan Favalli. 
Oof, that was one heck of an intro. Thank you. Thank you so much. You clearly did your research there. That's the that's probably the best podcast intro I have had in at least years, if not of all time. So thank you. That's what that, that's what that man is known for. <laughs> Yeah, we, we we try to we try to set the tone very early on, you know, hi, hype up the guests, you know, make them, you know, make them feel welcome and excited for, you know, what's about to come on. So, I mean, Dan, you know, as as you can tell, I've been listening to your podcast a lot. I'm a big fan of your work. Um, so very excited to have you on here. I mean, as I mentioned, like you're very complimentary of the Thunder, Shay, some of the guys we're going to talk all about that. So, uh, yeah, very excited to have you on, man. Uh, I appreciate that. That's a great that's this is all great for my ego. So. i remember hey so i mean feed your ego a little bit more let's just let's talk about you before we get into the thunder you know this is a thunder podcast let's talk about dan so um you know this is a question that we kind of ask all our first time guests uh you know just what first made you a basketball fan i was just i was super young and i was kind of born and raised a knicks fan and my my earliest basketball memories are sitting in front of the television um, watching Patrick Ewing just sweat a crap ton uh, and falling in love with his work ethic and then also just being simultaneously frustrated when you're at that age where you're not really analyzing the game, but you know enough to understand that Michael Jordan just never misses. Like, it's just that type of a, a thing. And so watching him just sort of roll through the Knicks on so many occasions, um, it was sort of like a love-hate relationship because it became torturous to watch like those Knicks teams be so good but never really get over the hump. But I think the time when I was so young being so involved with the Knicks and seeing like so many awesome playoff series between them and the Pacers and the heat specifically, uh, it didn't really taint how I felt about the game of basketball. Like if I was a younger fan that came around and saw the Knicks in like the early two thousands or something, like I'd be completely disenchanted from the sport of basketball. And so I think, I think timing had a lot to do with it. For sure, man. So, I mean, uh, obviously, you, you said you grew up watching the Knicks. You got a bunch of Knicks stuff in the background. Uh, you're living in New York now. Like, where, are you born and raised in New York? You from there originally? Yeah, I was born and raised in New York, uh, Long Island, the suburbs. I've never lived in the city. That's never been like, uh, I don't really actually like New York City. That's a dirty little secret. Having traveled oh, there nice. a bunch for work and been in Knicks games, I just, I don't like New York City. But yeah. yes, I've been in New York my entire life. Gotcha. Yeah, one of, one of our co-hosts, uh, Cone. Um, I guess he's like a, a co-worker adjacent to you, uh, where he does some streams for Bleacher Report as well. He just moved up there to New York here recently, and he's uh, he's having a good time there. So, um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, man, you're in New York. I mentioned that you went to St. Joseph's University. So, I mean, you got a degree in English. Uh, was it always a goal of yours to become a writer, or was there a different path that you could have taken you had in mind? No, I think once I was old enough to realize I was never going to be good at playing basketball, I always <laughs> wanted to to cover it. Um, it was interesting, though, how my career goals changed like sort of midstream, where I actually started out on a sports journalism scholarship at Penn State, and then just going through the motions there, seeing how the industry was changing, going through the Penn State program, which was actually like fairly terrible, um, <laughs> and it didn't seem like it was geared enough towards modern day, modern, modern day media, excuse me. Then just also being homesick, being away from a year. I decided to come home, got the English degree because that's clearly the smartest decision in life that you could make is to get the, the English degree. But um, I was happier there and I started writing online while I was still in school. And that ended up opening more doorways than following the internship at a, at a newspaper path ever would have. And so um, I think kind of the, you know, that was kind of at the peak of like the blogs or like the, the rise of the opinion writers. And I think that shaped mm-hmm. a lot of what I wanted to do. I always thought I needed to be a beat writer or work for a newspaper. 
And I was never someone who could hold back their opinion all that well. And also while I have all the respect in the world for beat writers that completely, I like objective subjectivity rather than just complete objectivity where it's like, you can't really write with necessarily a tone and a lot of it needs to be recappy and you're beholden to access and like what teams are going to let you in and you have to deal with them if they don't like something you write. And I have no problem answering for something I write, but to know that your access is beholden to the tone that you might carry with a team for certain organizations, not all of them. Um, that really just started to turn me off early on in my freshman year of school. And so I ended up just pivoting and sort of stumbling into like what was more just the online writing, which clearly was the, obviously the better, safer, stabler insofar as anything could be stable in this industry way to go. So you started with Bleacher Report in what, 2011? Yeah, I started with them when they were uh, still uh, just a laughing stock, basically. And I was there when uh, Turner bought them out and was lucky enough to be offered a full-time position. And I just, you know, that's rare in this industry, but I haven't looked back uh, ever since. So I do recognize that I'm I'm very lucky. Bleacher, how, Bleacher how... Report used to be like an, like an aggregate back in the day, right? Yes, but it was more like even more than that. It was like stuff that I was publishing wasn't, you know, going through editors. It wasn't being checked. It wasn't collaborative. I just came up with it. Oh. Um, and it was a lot more volume too. where when I first started out at Bleacher Report, I might do like and that points to the aggregation stuff that you do. And we still have people that do that because aggregation is still such a huge part of the industry. Mm -hmm. I'll be doing like eight to 10 pieces a day. And now it's like, I'll stop and look back and, you know, fast forward 10, 11 years later. And it's like, I might publish their massive like think pieces now, but they're like mm -hmm. one or two a week sometimes. And so it's, it's definitely a lot different. And I obviously prefer having the time to go a little bit more in detail. And um, there's more time to actually watch and study the game of basketball when, when like you're conducting it that way. So, but it's definitely a night and day experience from how I uh, came up for sure. So, Talking about that, you you were focused more on the Knicks probably early on, but now you're on the national level, right? The national scene, and you look at the entirety of the association. How was that transition from maybe following one team to having to be pretty knowledgeable about the entire NBA and, and write about it? That is one of the most intimidating things I've ever done in my entire life. Is it was when I first started writing for Bleacher Report, like it was mostly Knicks stuff. And then as they started to get more of a reputation, um, they asked me if I wanted to try covering the entire NBA. And so like, I'm still, I don't know, 20, maybe 21 at the time, whatever it was. And that's kind of when it happened. And it was, uh, you know, they gave me the, the leeway and the agency to learn. And I probably wrote a bunch of stuff that if I looked back, I just would not be proud of right now, but you learn to sort of um, juggle the time commitment that's involved and you have to learn to understand i think especially as and this would be a podcast that's a testament to it and i say this all the time on hardwood Knox, the localization of coverage um is definitely on the rise over the last half decade or so and so many of these regional team specific or market specific podcasts are so good um that it forces you to kind of stay up more on your stuff as a national per like writer and podcaster but you also have to recognize that people are coming to you for different things. They're not, you know, if you're a Thunder fan, you shouldn't come to Hardwood Knox because you want to know what the Thunder's rotation on the second night of a back-to-back -back on a Tuesday in January in the third quarter down by 10 looks like. Like, that's what you guys are for. Insofar as Mark Dagnall can ever run a predictable rotation because that guy feels like he <laughs> doesn't have <laughs> So that has been even a learning curve now later on. But I think the biggest adjustment was – um, it's sort of neutered. I'm still, I call myself a dead disenchanted Knicks fan, but it, it sort of kills 
like your specific fandom. And so there's a part of me that misses living and dying with the Knicks a little bit, but that was really the biggest adjustment was like, you know what? I'm not going to watch every Knicks game now, like, mm-hmm. because that's just not my job. And I spend so much time um, attempting to cover the entire NBA. <clears throat> and so it just becomes, I think the biggest adjustments to boil this down was figuring out the time commitment and how to balance it and then figure out a way to be thorough and at, as least insufferable as you can possibly be. Cause I do think there's a lot of disdain for how a lot of the national podcasts and media members cover the league. And there are people that hate me now and will downvote the podcast or come in my mentions. And so dealing with that was an adjustment too on the national like scale. Um, not to say that I'm popular, but you're just open to more criticism because there's more fan bases that will inherently have an opinion on, on what you wrote. And so all that has been an adjustment and some of it, especially the time stuff and figuring out how to cover the, entire league when so much is changing when you look at load management player availability and all these injury injuries it's a constant process but it is a challenge that um i do still enjoy as a thunder fan who uh roots for a team that owns the clippers future i really do love load management right now <laughs> so it's, it's my favorite as you should i mean you know we could talk about their 2024 pick but i even just like scale ahead to that 2026 pick it's like where might that thing be when you mm-hmm. look at how old Kawhi and pg will will be at that stage if they're even still on the clippers at that point point. and let's yeah. not forget about the 2025 pick swap oh yeah i'm just big on looking like two or three years ahead <laughs> on like some of those teams where it's just yeah. like you know I understand why people won't trade for the Lakers 2027 pick as an example, because if you're a front office guy, unless you're Sam Presti or Masai Ujiri, you don't have the job security to say, you know what, I'm going to be the one that does something with that pick. You also got to look at the teams and see like kind of how barren they are future assets and know that, well, they're going to come apart at the scenes at some point. And with the Clippers specifically, uh, we might be witnessing that in real time because they look beyond the load management and they've had good minutes with Kawhi and PG on the board. They just have so many concerns up and down that roster right now. The offense has been even by the load management standards, even after they've been a little bit better this month, it's been pretty bad. And so like, that's just definitely something to watch. Oh yeah. And you know, you, you was talking about how, um, you know, not everybody likes your coverage of like, you know, specific teams and stuff like that. Like I, I would be lying if I said that I haven't got a good hunk of engagement just off of screenshotting, like, you know, the thunder section of, you know, said bleacher report article and just putting it out there and be like, what, what do you guys think about this? And then just get like, you know, everybody arguing in the comments. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's all par for the course. You know, everybody wants to be mad at something. Everybody wants to, you know, like, uh, I, I I don't want to say fetishize it, but like, you know, whenever somebody listens to a podcast or sees an article and they see and like somebody says that the Thunder are going to do something crazy, like, you know, they get excited about it. Like whenever, you know, we're listening to the low post or something like that and, you know, they have a whole segment about the Thunder, everybody gets super excited about it. So, yeah, it's 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 definitely interesting, um, you know, kind of talking about that. And, you know, it kind of transitions into this question, you know, you have the podcast, the Hardwood Knox, and you do cover the league and you're very connected within, you know, a community and, you know, you have your discord and, you know, that's kind of like your main community, but like you branch out to like every team, you talk about every team. Um, what kind of inspired you to start the Hardwood Knox podcast and was, uh, was Grant a part of it from the jump? He was not, uh, we've actually worked together for basically my entire time at Bleacher Report. So he was always a guest, but I started it with, a former coworker and good friend, Adam Frommel. And it was just, we were very early on in our careers and we were looking for a way to 
Um, we, we saw that podcast for other eyes at the time. I think it was like 2014 or whatever it was. Man. We were looking for a different medium and a way to also kind of force yourself to um, stay even more up to date on the rest of the league. If you feel beholden to where you're the one that's crafting the content um, and interacting with listeners. Um, and so that was just kind of how it was inspired. And it's, it's undergone some lineup changes over the years. Um, but you know, it's grown into what it is today, which is a medium sized NBA podcast. There are a lot of bigger ones out there. I say this mm -hmm. all the time, but, uh, I do think it's, it's underrated, but it's also what makes it underrated is I think we don't take ourselves too seriously. And like, we really are about trying to cater to what the audiences want to hear. It's not meant to be, I guess, listen, baby or whatever it is. Like I'm sure people might hate listen to it or something, but our <laughs> audience, you know, mailbags are some of our favorite episodes. Like we want the listeners to drive the discussion and a lot of the times it feels like yeah topical stuff is good or if you want to get the you know the acclaim from like your peers who are in the industry you want them to listen to your podcast like that's always nice to hear when someone that i admire listens to the podcast it's just like oh you did but it doesn't happen that often but it has happened but it actually means more to me to be invited on a podcast that covers a specific team like this or to hear from listeners that keep coming back to have questions because they're a fan of a specific team and they're still going to come and listen to this podcast that maybe is going to be wrong or say have dissenting opinions from what they feel about their team or just come back and want to hear about the rest of the league. And so it was our desire, I think, at the beginning to dig deeper. Like we were kind of early on in covering the entire league and we just want to make sure we were doing that at a higher level. And then since then, we've definitely reached a plateau, I think, in terms of growth. So it's more about to me just the relationship I have with the listeners and the community. And there's definitely an ego thing to it, too. Like if you don't have a podcast and you're a full time NBA writer at this point, like there's has to be like these, you know, this inundated feeling of irrelevance at that point. And so I feel like if I just stopped podcasting, I would feel completely irrelevant. That, that's fair. That's hundred percent fair. I, I understand what you mean there. Um, and, you know, kind of touching on, uh, you know, I, I guess like your coverage of the NBA teams, uh, something I do appreciate that, you know, like take the low post, like I mentioned before. Um, I remember, I think it was Gavoni that was on his podcast. They were talking about the Thunder Young Core, and uh, Zach Lowe was talking about how like Jalen Williams, J Dub, um, you know, isn't like you know long or athletic or anything like that. And Gavoni's like, he's literally seven foot. He has a seven foot two wingspan, and it just like, and Zach Lowe was like shocked, and it just like kind of told you like, oh, he hasn't really tuned into the Thunder. Like I appreciate that you guys like your your opinions informed basically like i can tell that you've actually like watched the game you've actually done your homework um and you know following along on your twitter like you're live tweeting or you're live tweeting like you know a random thunder like pistons game like you you're doing your homework so i appreciate that uh i appreciate that in lieu of being able to break down x's and o's like a zach Lowken or like a nakias duncan ken in real time like that's oh, just, yeah. that's what i have to do so i appreciate that at least comes across that i'm trying to be informed even if it doesn't always work out that way. <laughs> Absolutely. So speaking about being informed and looking at things at a higher level, uh, NBA math, were you part of the creation of that? And what what's your involvement with that? I get way too much credit for NBA math, and I deserve basically none of it. Uh, <laughs> that was the brainchild of my still good friend, Adam Prommel, who I started the Hardware Knox podcast with. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, uh, when we published more written content, I was the deputy editor in chief and we used to run a, uh, a sports writing program for people who were trying to break into the industry where we would give them feedback. Um, some of them, and that's probably one of the coolest things in my career is like some of them have gone on to work for teams. Some of them are just, um, they're in the business now and they're like fairly popular. And so it's cool to see people that 
I don't want to say I mentored because I wouldn't give myself that much credit, but to see people you worked with and collaborated with and gave feedback to go on to succeed. Um, and so that was like, you know, the podcast is still published there on the website, but that was like the heaviest I was involved when we did that for, I think it was only two years because it became such a time commitment thing on our end when we had all this other stuff happening. Um, but no, the, the stats, the models, the graphics, those are all the brainchild of, of Adam. And he somehow was able to keep up with all that despite his own responsibilities. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be lying if I told you that I fully understand what TPA means, but all I know is whenever he puts the graph out and Shay's up there, you know, around like Luca, Jason Tatum and all that, I'm like, all right, you know, we're, we're doing good. That's like, look, as fans and even like media members aren't going into the nitty gritty to see like, oh, well, why is Raptor like this? Or what is like the LeBron metric? Like there's not people who are reading through all that. It's the, it's the visuals that really speak to people. And I think mm -hmm. he was to his credit was one of the earlier ones where I think a lot of people have taken on the, the trend of where you see like the way it's plotted, where they're using the faces and it's like, they're putting yeah. it against, you know, volume and efficiency is like the, the big one. And I think he was, uh, Kirk Goldsberry did a lot of that too, but I do think Adam at, at NBA math was like one of the first ones to start that. Now it's just all over Twitter. And so like, and look, visuals are, visuals are helpful. And it's a, you know, there's no perfect catch all metric, but I know that he's run the formula by like people who, I don't want to say matter. That's a terrible way to put it. But like people who would know that stuff. And they've like said like, yeah, like this works. And again, not everything, not all kitchen sink metrics. None of them are meant to be absolute, but I think he just stumbled onto something certainly with the visuals. And I, I do think, you know, I get the desire to want to distill things down to one stat sometimes too, because there's so much that you mm -hmm. want to discuss or think about or write. Like if you're just looking for something to prove the macro view of a player, um, and especially if it's matching with what you've seen, or even in the case of like, you know, I have jokes in the podcast where it's like, I have my own agendas. Like I will find you a stat that shows you Frank Neil Keen is impactful. <laughs> if you can do that and TPA like sort of helps you. Um, I think the visuals end up being like a major lift there. I love it, man. Well, hey, as I mentioned, you know, TPA is very friendly to Shea. And, you know, if you're talking about OKC with an NBA fan, you can't go very long without mentioning Shea. Um, were you surprised by the leap he's taken this year? And do you think he might have another leap in him? I don't I don't want to say I was shocked. It's I mean, like he's been a top 10, top A player in the league. And it's like that surprising when you look mm -hmm. at who's just in that company. Um, I'm, I guess I'm not surprised because watching him the past two years, there was the stop and start nature to his seasons based off when he actually finished them. But like the self-creation element was always there and not even, uh, so that'd be the 2020, 2021 season. Like his efficiency was just through the roof. And so like, this has just been an extension of that kind of on steroids. And I think what probably most surprises me is that when you look at the way the thunder run their offense, you know, Josh Giddy's gotten a lot better, uh, at playing off of Shea and Lou Dort, like is just more comfortable firing away and knows how to use open space. But, like the Thunder offense is not like aesthetically pleasing still when you look at their spacing. And this dude is just able to get through crevices, have all these tough finishes, these change of pace drives. It's really mesmerizing. And I think if I'm actually surprised by anything, um, how he's leveled up as just a playmaker overall and, and reacts to just the chaos that he creates is huge. And then the other thing is, and I tweeted about this a couple weeks ago, I think, the Thunder do go, I won't call it to great lengths, but they do insulate him a lot defensively. And yet I haven't seen him play so well on defense since he was a rookie on the Clippers. And I thought he was going to be like one of the best defenders in, in the NBA. And so like to carry that two-way burden or to stay, to, to be that good on both ends of the floor in the same season and to have the Thunder like in the play-in mix. Uh, again, it's, it's surprising. It's not shocking because I think he's shown this, this caliber of play, but to do it now for so long, uh that it like it's just it is kind of astounding to say well did we think that Shea was going to be a top 10 top 8 player this year no i would i would not have predicted it
so going along with that, that was before what you could have predicted. Uh, NBA math on, on Twitter uh, talked about the West All-Stars per PRR MVP. Um, so the All-Star starters are announced on Thursday. A lot of national media heads stumping for Shea. They, they were talking about him potentially making it last year and injuries, you know, and, and whatnot could have derailed that. Where do you stand on Shea, the starter in the uh, All-Star game? And what do you think will happen? I stand that Luka Doncic should be eligible forward because that's what he defends. Um, and then yes. it becomes very easy to put Shea Gillis-Alexander as a starter in the All-Star game, whether he's with Steph Curry or John Morant. That would be my official stance. What I struggle with when it comes to All-Star is how much do I wait minutes played? And it becomes like sort of that push and pull in the MVP discussion where I think actually availability, just because we've gone through a full season at that point, is probably a little bit more important. The three options, though, to me, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to Ja, is Steph, Luca, and Shea. Like, those would be the right calls. Um, I would probably lean, just because of how much time that Steph Curry ended up missing, I would probably lean Shea and Luca at this point. Who Like, Luca's availability has been a bear this year, and I don't know where the Mavericks would be without out that. Um, what, what do I think is going to happen? I think it's going to be a Doncic Steph Curry, uh, backcourt. And I don't want to say that's the wrong answer. What I think is probably comforting, at least I would think to Thunder fans is like Shea Alexander is going to be an all-star, whether he's mm-hmm. a starter, like he's just going to be an all-star. And that's like a pretty awesome thing to be able to say when I think the, the low hanging fruit from the national media and fans who follow the league at large, which is like, Oh, is he even going to be like still active by the time they get to the all-star break? So follow up on that. Because, you know, things are a little finicky and whatnot with like how the voting and all that happens. Forget All-Star game. Let's talk All-NBA. Where do you have Shea? What is he on an All-NBA team and where? Yeah, I think he would probably be on my... And I actually need to go through this exercise for another podcast that I'm doing tomorrow. Uh, I think I have him on second team right now is where I went through in my rough draft. And Strong. you have to like factor in some of the East guards and like Donovan Mitchell's sort of right up there. Yeah. But aside from having Mitchell... If Steph ends up playing enough time just because we still have the rest of the season to go and Luca, like there are the three and I don't really know who you're trying to put like in front of Shea after that. And so like, there's your four guard spots. So I would think that Shea would be no lower than the second team. There's a chance. There's a chance, especially because of what the injury to Devin Booker. Now, like there's a real chance that Shea ends up being like on the first team too. I don't think he's going to beat out both Luca and Steph. I'd be shocked, but like, there's a, there's a real, I have him as a second team lock right now, but there's a real chance if one of those guys ends up missing time or Steph ends up missing more time, or if the Warriors decide that, hey, this is another gap year and Steph is going to be done in March or something like that's going to be a pretty big boon for uh, SGA's, not just all NBA case, but first team all NBA case. Oh, yeah. It, it's kind of funny whenever Woj tweeted out that uh, Trey Young, Luka Doncic, and Shea all signed max extensions. You know, he included a bigger number with Luca and Trey because it was including the All NBA incentive. Shea got the incentive, but he didn't tweet it out with it. And it's it's gonna be funny that Shea might get that incentive before Trey. Or, you know, obviously Trey's got All NBA before, but like before Trey does, uh, you know, on his max extension, it's just kind of ironic. Love to see it. Um, all right, man. So you know, kind of switching gears a little bit, Josh Giddy. Uh, so Josh Giddy's turned what looked into a sophomore slump, uh, and he's turned it into a sophomore supremacy with this play since uh, you know early December. What improvements do you see most from Giddy from last year, and uh, where do you think he projects lead wide for his ceiling? 
Yeah, so uh, a player that it looks like I was woefully wrong about uh, last year leading into this season, where I wouldn't say I'll never be out on a second-year player, but his game just did not appeal to me. I thought it was a terrible fit alongside Shea. Mm-hmm. I will say probably the thing that's most impressed me is how well he seems to fit next to Shea now. He looks a lot more comfortable working off the ball. Um, he's hit, I think it's almost for the season now, 36% of his zero dribble threes, and he's just been off the charts on efficiency of that um, lately, like you mentioned, probably since December. And that's, you know, people can make fun of it. They could talk about the hitch that's still in his jumper, how wide open he is. Those are the shots you need to hit. Like, those are the shots he's going to get, even if you're in a playoff setting for now. And yeah, it'd be nice to maybe see him be more efficient and higher volume on pull-ups, but this is year two. And I think the willingness to shoot from distance now, and then also a couple, he just seems a lot, he seems a lot more unpredictable when he's going downhill and a lot more willing to toss up the floater or finish around the basket. Um, it adds a variance to his game that I think is important. And it makes you think like, oh, like him and Shea really could work long-term. And as far as where he projects to the rest of the league, I don't know how to do that necessarily. I know you asked about like, where might he go in a redraft? And I think I could say with confidence, the only players that I would take over him right now from that draft class are still Cade, Evan Mobley, Franz Wagner, and probably Scotty Barnes. And mm-hmm. so, like, those are the four players that I would say, like, there might be people that say, oh, like, well, I might take Shangun. It's like, well, I'm, I'm not going to take Shangun. I prefer someone who's going to actually operate more from the, the point of attack. That's pretty big time for him. And the other way I would frame this is he's just tracking toward, I like, and this is skipping too far ahead, but when you start to think he's going to wrap up year two, then comes year three and he's extension eligible. If this is just the track, if this is the player that he is right now, that's probably going to cost you near or absolute max money to extend him. And so like, that's a pretty big, yeah, those extensions get handed out a little bit more frequently because of how friendly rookie extensions tend to be. But like, that is the course that he is on now. I'm not mm-hmm. saying he's going to be this perennial all-star, but like for me to say that, even as someone who was just like meh on him leading into this year, like he's shown a ton of improvement and you want to see it continue this season and into next year when the Thunder are going to look different with Chet Holmgren there. But like, this is someone who I think, could maybe have an all-star ceiling. But like I said, I think he's going to have that. The best way to frame it for me right now is he looks like someone who's going to be one of those formality near max extension candidates. Gotcha, man. Yeah. I, I mean, as far as like being wrong on Josh Giddy, I mean, <laughs> what, what no further to us, uh, you know, we had a, uh, what was it? We did a live spaces uh, during the draft, like reacting to all of our picks and stuff. Uh, we were fiending for James book night. And uh, <sighs> then, then Josh Giddy was the pick. <laughs> And so it was not pretty. It was not pretty. It was not pretty to the eye. It was not pretty to the ears. It was not pretty at all. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we couldn't have been more wrong. We was wrong by getting in wrong about book night in the same pick. So, you, you know, you're, you're not alone there. Yeah. I remember book nights first summer league thinking like, Oh, like this, this kid's going to be something. And then it's just like, like, Oh man, that's just Charlotte's just so sad. We need to move on immediately. I'm depressed. Yeah, no, it really is sad. It just keeps getting worse too. Um, all right, man. What's uh so so let's talk about this year's draft class. Obviously, we drafted Chet Holmgren, Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara, Jalen Williams out of Arkansas, and Usman Jang from the NBL. Uh what what was your thoughts on this year's draft class for us? Uh I thought Chet was just a great pick. I mean, I know he's out for the year. I know that's like when especially when you see how good this team is, that just really sucks, such man. Like he's just such a perfect hit for what they need, but it does make you more excited to see what they're you know they're probably gonna get to exercise that clipper swap this year like so then they're gonna add another lottery pick to it um but i'm excited to see him play and i thought that was the no-brainer pick for them with Mm Paolo already off the board i know some people kind of thought that jabari might have been the better fit for them 
uh, I think it was Andrew Slett had said on one of his podcasts that the Thunder are just going to not draft a player like that because he can't make an like there's not enough layers to his offensive game. And mm-hmm. so that makes a lot of sense. The the player I was most excited about and I was irate and they never would have made this pick because the, the Knicks don't make this pick. I was in love with Usman Jang. And like, I don't know if we need to get him like some Teflon wrists just to make sure this doesn't <laughs> to happen. He looks like someone who's going to be really good, has a nice feel for the game. I think he's going to be an exceptional defender. There's going to be a lot riding on his jump shot, of course, but this just, when you watch him on offense on or off the ball, there's a feel there. Um, and I think he's going to end up being like really impactful defensively. And I didn't even, I knew nothing about either J- Jalen Williams, to be fair, because I crashed course before the draft, like a few weeks beforehand. But um, Jalen Williams is super exciting. You talk about someone who also seems like he has a really good feel for the game as a rookie. Um, like those are two players in Williams and Jang that I think, yeah, okay, they're going to be mentioned after Chad Holmgren. Like those are two guys, when you look at them, it's, I could see them being very important parts of an NBA rotation for the next decade plus. And so did the Thunder just draft three of those types of guys in the same draft? And the answer is, we clearly don't know right now, but but maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you know, talking about, you know, the two years ago, water or, or draft night, whenever we went over spaces, we, we was drafting over spaces last year too. So uh, whenever that trade came in that we was, you know, trading back into the lottery and not giving up our pick, you know, the next pick after making it three lottery picks, we were going nuts, insane. Um, you know, kind of talking to you, you know, about you, about your Knicks fandom, obviously you like to use my Jane, but like, are, are you okay with the three first round picks or would you rather have Usman Jane? I'd rather have Usman Jang. I mean, like those, they were three or two. I call them fake first round picks. Yeah, there's, there's they a were worst pick. chance those Detroit and Washington picks just do not. I'd probably bet on the Washington pick actually never conveying. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, like, we'll see what happens with that Detroit. But they're they're protected until Kingdom Come, and we saw it with the Donovan Mitchell trade sweepstakes. We're seeing it even kind of now, leading into the trade deadline. Those don't have the cachet. Um, that you think they do just because they say first round pick on it. It's you look at it and go, well, we're probably not going to get that till 2026. If that, or if it's the wizards case until 2028 or whatever it is, if that, um, or if it's flip flops, whatever. So I would absolutely positively rather have Usman Jang. And they did not contrary to what people are going to make you believe. Like there were other modes of operations that they could have went about to, um, end up dumping salary and clearing space for Jalen Brunson. Like that didn't have to be part of their off season machinations in any, it like in any form. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, those those were like at least those two, but like those were three of our fir- worst first round picks that we have, like in our treasure chest. The first red flag is is Sam Presti consolidating picks. That's <laughs> for, if that's your first red flag, if that's what he was doing, he's consolidating first. You should really take a, a good long look at at the value of them. So I have a partial question to piggyback on that. Who would you rather have, Alperin Shingoon or Usman Jang? on your team moving forward. Oh man. I really hope there aren't Rockets fans listening to this podcast. I'd probably just take Usman. Probably not. I, I, I know people think Alperin Shangun, they don't exist. Yeah. I, I, I know people think Alperin Shangun is like better on defense than expected, but I think that speaks more to the low bar that we have for him on defense than anything else. And I appreciate more of the, the defensive versatility of an Usman Jang. And then sort of just like when you look at his player archetype, it's just more desirable if he pans out. Uh, than it would be for Shangun, who has not even, you know, same thing for Jang here, but like Shangun is a fantastic passer. He can put the ball on the floor, but he hasn't shown like much of a, a perimeter shot at all. And I think you cap your offense when it, it feels like you have someone like Shangun who needs to be the focal point or the semi focal point to make his impact. Whereas like 
Usman Jang is going to just end up filling a bunch of different gaps and is not going to need to be this, this featured player on the offensive end. And so I think that there is, when you get to that point where we're not talking about like this very good from scratch point of attack creator, I want the guy who's going to be more scalable across different iterations of the team rather than someone who in Shangun, I think you probably need to more specifically tailor the rest of your roster to. So Shingun was one center that we uh, decided we didn't want and we traded, but you mentioned, uh, yes, we, we were a very exciting team, but playing without our guy at the five spot who we drafted number two overall in Chet Holmgren, where do you think the Thunder are right now if Chet's in the fold? That's such a tough question. He's so, in theory, such a great fit to what they need. But then you also have to kind of kick in, well, he is a rookie. And, like, were they going to hit on just every single rookie that they had? Yes, um, yes, they were. <laughs> and also just the role that he would have played on defense would have just been – I think really central when looking at the position that he plays and they don't have like these other bigs to necessarily inoculate. I would have, first of all, I would have loved to have seen like a Poku Holmgren front court. Yeah. Um, like, and it's, someone in our discord had said like the thunder need to somehow get Wemby so that they can have those three and call them the Holy Finity. And that was the first time I'd ever <laughs> seen that. And I couldn't stop laughing. Um, oh my God. Oh, that Clippers great. pick needs to happen now. I was going to happen. I would pay obscene amounts of money to watch those three play together. But all that said, they're probably if he's just healthy, they're probably better. Um, if you are giving like real minutes to let's even say two rookies, because like I would have been interested to see how does Holmgren being healthy impact the, the opportunity that Poku ended up getting at the middle of the season, but like does it impact like the Jang or the Williams minutes at all a little bit too? I just think the Thunder, if anything, they'd probably be maybe a little bit worse on defense, but I think a lot better on the offensive end than they've been so far. And so maybe they're kind of in the same territory, if not a little better, but like his theoretical fit on this roster, if he's healthy and he's just ready, uh, it's just, and also working with Chip Anglin too, who's as someone who's already an accomplished shooter. Um, I would think that the thunder would just be much better off. And that's why it's so tantalizing to think about not their future. Like what does this team look like next year? Even if they're left basically untouched. Yeah, we're very excited, man. I mean, obviously, like, we have a pick in next year's draft. You know, we don't know how high it's going to be necessarily, but we do have that Clippers pick swap that, you know, may even make it higher than we thought it would be. Um, and then also we have, you know, no matter what happens, no matter who we bring in, no matter where we finish this year, we're adding Chet Holmgren to the next next year. So, like, it's it's going to be moving, man. It's going to be very excited. Um, you know, you, you kind of talked about, you know, how he would fit with the Thunder. Uh What's your evaluation for Chet like long term in this league? Do you think that are you one of those guys that think he's too skinny, like it's not going to work out, or like do you see the all star potential? Like, I mean, what, what do you think about Chet? I would probably lean pretty heavily towards the latter. I'd be just concerned about what does he end up being on defense. Um, like the switchability is there, and so if you wanted to play him with another big where he's going to defend fours or even wings, I think that's fine as a primary big would probably be like defender. That would be where I would have questions. I don't have any about like offense. He's either going to be complimentary, or I think that that's someone you could put the ball in his hands, operate from the point of attack, even if you want to um, as a point center point, point four, whatever you'd want to call him, And that would work. And so I would be, you know, I, I would be absurdly high on, on his future in the NBA. And I won't, I will never just presume like someone is going to be fragile. And then everything you read, or if you listen to podcasts that had like the medical experts on, like this injury was just not something that had anything to do with, oh, he's just super skinny. Like, no, that's not what it is. And we've seen players 
yeah, when you see lower body injuries to like really rail thin bigs, there is like cause for some concern, but we've seen Kevin Durant, who's as skinny as they come, come back from an Achilles injury to deal with his lower body injuries, but still be a borderline MVP favorite during his age 34 season. And so I'm not trying to compare the two here. Uh, I just, I will never default to, well, what's, what's his durability going to be like? Are we just, are you not going to draft Victor Wembanyama number one, because he's super skinny too? No, you're going to draft Victor Wembanyama. Most. <laughs> so, um, Oh, sorry. I was just thinking of the whole affinity. Uh, yeah, that's so no, good. that's great. That's, that's great. So good. Um, so a guy who's uh got a cult following here in OKC. Some some guys in national media love him. Uh, Lou Dort. What are your overall thoughts on Lou Dort, and do you see him as a core piece for us moving forward? The I think it was David Brandon on Twitter. This is now years ago, but this is how much it stuck with me. Tweeted Lou Dort plays like a Mack truck that is made of smaller Mack trucks. And that's just <laughs> something that has stuck with me. Um, he has improved so much. I think offensively, when you look at his, even his efficiency, like when you start to break down splits from the season, like the three point efficiency has improved, but the willingness to shoot from three and then the decision-making that he um, has when he can put the ball on the floor. Like this is not someone that you need to worry about as a, I think in a, in an average offense as being a liability in the playoffs. Like it could come back to bite you a few times more when you're looking at this current thunder setup, because I think they need him to make probably a little bit more shots or a little bit more decisions with the ball than another team might. But I would absolutely consider him a core piece of the team unless they decide like, Hey, we're going to make this blockbuster trade for a star to come in. Because when you look at, I know people had like sticker shock when they saw his contract, that is like at worst, uh, like a quasi bargain when you look at what he's going to be making relative to the new salary cap. So can I see a potential if the thunder decided to break character in a few years and go after a star? He's a player that team who's selling a star is going to want because he's still, he's super young. I think people forget how young Lou Dort still is too. Um, but otherwise, like if, or if OKC is just going to go through this organic rebuild, like it seems like, like they're going to do, I don't know why you wouldn't necessarily consider him uh, a core piece at this point, unless you end up stumbling into so many good wing players through the draft over the next couple of years because the Clippers just suck. I guess there's a potential to see him like bump down a peg or three. I'm enjoying the continuous piling of the Clippers in this podcast. I just got to say, um, but you know, I mean, Lou Dort, I mean, like you said, like defensively is like where he hangs his hat and just the combination of Shea and Dort specifically in the clutch, like the shot making that Shea provides on the offensive end. And then like it was on display in, in the Nuggets game on Sunday, like Shea hit the game winner and there was still time left on the clock. He's he, he's done that a couple of times this season now. Um, and then Lugan Dort, you know, went in there and he locked up Jamal Murray for the final shot. Like the combination of the two, like, you know, I mean, they're best friends. Like they, you know, they've known each other like, you know, for, forever. And like, you know, they, they ride and die with each other, but like on the court, they complement compliment each other so well. So um, yeah, I, I've, I've loved what I've seen out of Lucas Dort this year. And like specifically, you know, kind of like Giddy as well, you know, since the beginning of December, like Luke Dort's looked great recently offensively still has some head scratchers on offense you know every now and then he's got to get him out of the system but in terms of shooting the ball and like you know being in attack mode but yeah he's been awesome um obviously man like you know this is a it's a really fun team and i, I just want to ask you you know as we kind of like wrap up this section of the the pod um are there any other players on okc that really stick out to you that you know i guess that you love specifically 
I mean, I'm a Poku diehard, and I thought that he yes. became like around February of last year or whatever it was when he rejoined the rotation, like he became actively good. Um, it does kind of hurt the agenda that they've played their best basketball without him this year, <laughs> yeah. I would think. But I do think when you watch him play and what he can do as a, a help defender and how I think he's kind of found a way to be more complimentary on offense, this is not someone, and I don't think it's been someone like this for a while, but he's clearly not someone who's like this novelty and needs to be evaluated that way. I think he's someone who can make a real impact on an NBA team. Is it going to be this one when you're looking at Chet Holmgren and kind of the, the rest of the makeup of the roster? I have no idea, but I think he's someone who is um, going to be actively helpful to whether it's this team or another team, an NBA team for, for years. Looking at that, so you're talking about the makeup with other people. <sighs> the Thunder were called the black eye of the NBA with their tanking. <laughs> Presti isn't the guy for the job after the trades happened and everything. You know, ESPN stoking the flames to try to fill uh, their shows. How do you feel about Presti's approach to this rebuild? And with Thunder 2.0, how do you feel about this new age of roster construction that Presti has kind of pushed forward? It's a little different than the first time around. Right. So in terms of the job he's done, um, I do wonder if, if he thought it was going to be like this quick of a turnaround to where they stunk for two years and now they're good. Uh, but it pokes a hole in the theory of that they were somehow damaging basketball. I mean, the Rockets now suck for three years in a row yep. and like the, and they're getting worse. wasn't even planned. So like the James Harden pouting kind of set them back. Um, and they're like, they're organically bad too. They have a lot of interesting guys. They just, they don't have a coherent product on the basketball court. Um, so I don't have an issue with what he did in the first place. I think I'd written something. I don't know if it was leading into this season, but I'd said like, if you get to a point where like you're shutting down Shea again, like then we can start asking some questions this year. And it was no, they that. don't even be good, but like, let's see this year through and they're going to see this year through there because they're good. But also Shea has been, you can't even entertain the idea when he's going for an all NBA yeah. second team birth of shutting him down. And so that almost, that provides clarity to the rebuild as well. And I think the other thing that should assuade people was that Shea came out during his exit interview. It was like, me and basically, this is not for him. Like, me and Sam talk all the time. I love it here. Like, I, I love the direction of this team. It's like the tr the trade chatter could have stopped right there. Players never say that. Yeah. So, yes, if if they ended up moving him, like, okay, fine. Then you can bring back the memes and say, well, what were they? But, like, you had Presti saying one thing. You had Shea. You never just hear that level of commitment from a player. And then also, like, oh, he signs – the five-year extension like that's i understand players sign that extension. no player option right but th <laughs> that's the thing is when there wasn't a player option one wtf to shay's agent quite frankly like, <laughs> he, he was good enough to have a player option but the fact Lost that he wasn't in there is a harbinger of and like even this season i think i went back and looked because i forgot he didn't have a player option because he's so good i just assumed he would have a player option so mm -hmm. the absence of that is like the thunder aren't looking to move him otherwise you don't push for that um so i didn't have a problem with what they did i think the discourse was definitely in some circles um skewed in the wrong direction for sure when i look at the way that they've built this roster where it feels like when you go back to the the sort of like the i guess the the hardened durant westbrook days where they were kind of the the only players who felt like they could make decisions with the ball at times and now you have a bunch of different guys who aren't going to be the level of from scratch creators that those dudes were um that's been like interesting to kind of ponder. And it feels like they have so many guys who can do so many different things uh, that if you sort of hit on, you know, we know they have Chet and Giddy 
and Shay. And then like, you're looking at, okay, well, what's J dub going to become, or what's Jane become? What's this pick become? What does Trey Mann look like? Well, they just have so many different guys long-term that can hit on skill sets that are not singular. Um, it's going to be when they are a finished product. I'm kind of anxious to kind of see what it looks like. And I don't even think that I fully understand like the form they're looking to take. If we fast forward to the version of the thunder that are contenders, um, but I do, I will say like, it's been for them to prioritize versatility and players where they feel like they can, yeah, they might have flaws, a fundamental flaw in their skill set, but they really feel like they could build it up. Um, it's definitely been intriguing. And I think for them, you know, Giddy might even be like one of the, the best case studies of it right now. And of, of course, of course, Dort is one as well with how he's improved on offense, but there's still for me as someone who's like, you know, taking the 10,000 30 foot view, there's still like a curiosity to what they look like in their finished form. Do you, uh, do you think there's a, a measure of trepidation from Sam Presti um, in that the last iteration, you know, the, the Durant Westbrook Harden thunder, they kind of got too good, too fast. Uh, I think, I, I think that team, you know, may have benefited from like a year or two still of like progress instead of just complete superstardom because then you had to start paying them like superstars. And it seems like this team is kind of in that same track where you have Shea, he's already got his max. You have someone like Giddy, like you said, he keeps on playing the way he's playing. He's going to get a max deal regardless. You know, you have somebody like Chet coming up. And so, you know, do you think the speed at which this team is kind of getting good, maybe, you know, maybe scares Presti a little bit? I'd actually never contemplated that. I think maybe um, something that probably has to help a little bit is that now you have someone like Dort on a bargain of a deal. And mm-hmm. so he's paying. You don't have to worry about him. And even Shea's max is going to age incredibly well against the the rising salary cap. Um, and then knowing that, you know, we don't know what Jang or even J-Dub might be at the peak. Giddy looking as like their next, oh, that could be an expensive investment. I think that inoculates them a little bit against feeling that they've made too much progress too soon. And there's also just going to be other mechanisms for them to improve that they didn't have in those years because they control so much of the Rockets and Clippers draft moving forward. And so that will help them make other decisions, whether it's trades, like, because if they're too good too soon, like you have to look at consolidating some of these future assets to make the most of that window while you can afford it. Um, So yeah, I haven't given enough thought though to whether they are getting too good too quickly. I don't think it should give him like any sort of trepidation, just looking at the, Again, the next payday, the next windfall would go to Giddy. There's no one else on the roster that you're like, oh, this this guy's going to cost like so much money. But there is like the real urgency, just having all of these players, even looking ahead to this summer, where you project to have one open roster spot, assuming Muscala stays on, and that's going to go to the first round pick, whether it's yours or the Clippers. And then you have all these other first round picks coming down the pipeline. You do have to start making decisions on players overall. And it's like, okay, we kind of know like Darius Baisley is just not going to be here next year but like it, those decisions might get tougher as you start to have more of these first round pick commitments trickle in during the during the same years and so that has to be something i think that they're at least thinking about and i wonder if part of it even though they were basically fake first they gave to the knicks that had to go into the consideration a little bit where it's like yeah we are consolidating like what could be let's say two players into into one rather than three for one and so that's i think something that they're gonna have to start thinking about maybe not this summer, but like after that, they're probably going to have to weigh it pretty heavily. I would think. Yeah, for sure, man. And, um, you know, even talking about like, you know, with the salaries and, you know, the, uh, you know, it kind of coming too fast or whatever. Um, obviously, you know, 
Presti and Quay Bennett and the ownership group have shown the willingness to pay the tax for a winning product. They weren't going to pay the tax while we were going through a rebuild. Like, you know, they, they traded off Chris Paul, they traded off Stephen Adams, Gallo, like get all those max contracts out there. Let's get under the tax. And we have been for the past couple of years and, you know, we still are. Um, but, you know, back when, you know, Russ was running his own team, back when we had Paul George, Carmelo Anthony, uh, Jeremy Grant, then after it and all that, like, you know, that was a tax team. I think a lot of the issue was, um, you know, whenever – KD, Harden, Russ, Ibaka all came up to be paid. We could have paid the tax. We could have kept that team theoretically, but that was still a very new franchise, um, you know, at that stage of, you know, their their contention or whatever. So, like, they didn't necessarily – they weren't necessarily prepared to pay the luxury tax. You know, a few years down the line, like I said, whenever Russell Westbrook was running the show, he had Paul George and co., they were willing to pay the tax. And, you know, now we've gone through the rebuild. We've been out of the tax the past couple of years. You know, when you're going through a rebuild, it's a great time to save money. It's a great time to, you know, like build back up your funds. And so I think that when it's time, like, you know, when obviously Shay's on his max, you get Giddy, you get Chet, you know, maybe you even bring in somebody that you get their bird rights. Like, yeah, it's going to be a big bill. But I think that this ownership group and this organization and, uh, you know, the management has proven that you know they're willing to pay for a winning product um you know they just have to be a winning product yeah i would agree and i think if you took the james harden situation circa 2012 and you only had that information in 2012 you didn't know james harden was going to go on to be james harden that franchise now makes a different decision um than they did back then having the same information again i think like you said being more established and just you know you mentioned paul george and this is the as someone who's advocated for like, if I was OKC, I understand why you don't do it this season because their their salary matching tools are just quite frankly terrible because everyone's so cheap. Um, so you get yeah. past Shea and Lou Dort, it's like, no, you're not trading Josh Giddy. So, but like, I've been an advocate for them to buy or at least be a little bit more aggressive because they have shown when you had Russell Westbrook, like he went after Paul George, who was not only not guaranteed to resign, but just like he went after Paul George. And so when you have who you deem that guy, they've mm-hmm. shown that they will be aggressive. Shay is very clearly that guy. And so I know that's, I mentioned, I made a joke about this on Twitter is sometimes I stumble on to teams and I'm a little bit earlier on them than the consensus, like the Suns. but then gradually like the honeymoon phase kind of dissipates. And I have a dissenting opinion. That seems to be where it was with thunder fans. We're on YouTube where I've gotten comments on Twitter. Like, no, they're not going to make a trade. They're going to slow play this. And they have all those picks. Shay is that guy. And when you have that guy, you maximize the window with that guy, not because you're afraid that he's going to leave because he's that guy. And Shea is that guy. And I think what we've seen with how the thunder have acted in the past, when they have that guy, um, I, again, would I be surprised if they did something major? Absolutely. But I don't think you can rule out them thinking along those lines because they have in the past, especially when Shea is giving you this information, not, Oh, I could be X. No, I, he's a top 10 player right now. Like he's been a top 10 player this season. He's going to make all NBA barring, like an injury or anything along those lines. So that's what also makes their future fascinating is they are so flexible because they have all these assets. And I think the general consensus was, is that they're just going to bring a lot of them in, develop them and like try to keep them and groom them. It's not going to work like that forever, especially when you have a player who is this good. And so I do think that this franchise is more equipped to sort of like juggle the the two different directions that invariably they might have to. Mm -hmm. I just think people around the league and maybe even some thunder fans are discounting like why there might be, I don't want to call it urgency, but why this team might be willing sooner than most expect to make 
so depending on who's available or what they think that they need. And I think the bigger setback is if you had Chet on the court, like now you know what you need on top of your entire core. And right now it's very much, well, Chet can come in and plug that and who's best suited to play alongside Chet. You're not going to have that information until next season, which is definitely like um, that holds you back in terms of making some, some decisions leading into the, to the summer. Yeah. And, you know, kind of talking about that, you know, you have been a advocate for the Thunder being buyers. I think in one of your most recent articles, like you had seven points and the first one was the Thunder should be buyers. And, you know, you've talked about it in your podcast. Um, what does that look like to you? Like who's, who's some legit targets that you could uh, you could see the Thunder targeting that you would like to see on this team, you know, to help them with their play in or playoff push? So and why and why is it OG and Anobi? <laughs> it's funny because I don't think it's OG Ananobi who I feel like it might be one of the most overrated players in the league right now because I just don't see it from him on offense like you want someone who can hit you like some standstill threes and then turn the ball over when he puts it on the floor awesome like you you know I'm not saying I prefer to have J-Dub I'm just saying if it's good I don't think what the Thunder need most that he's going to provide them maybe be different if Chet was there I've been trying to figure out a way to get Miles Turner on this team for like a year um, they just don't have the salary matching tools right now without giving up players that I think they would deem too steep. That's a name if I were them because I have cap space, I would circle in free agency. I love his fit with Chet. When you look on sort of a like a, a medium scale or a smaller scale, I still would like to see this team like add a functional shooter. I think they're like second in three point percentage since the start of January. They need still like more functional shooting and volume. And I like Isaiah Joe has been lights out and then the giddy and the Dort improvement. But like, so names that I have circled have been like Garrison Matthews in Houston, just someone who can come in and chuck or PJ Washington in Charlotte, because we have no idea what the hell the Hornets are doing. And he's going to be up for a payday. So names like that. The other one I considered just because I don't think the Nets particularly want to play so small and you have Royce O'Neal, you have KD when he's healthy with Kyrie. You're not really sending Joe Harris anywhere. TJ Warren's playing a bunch of minutes. Ben Simmons is there. I've wondered what it would take to get Seth Curry out of Brooklyn at this point. And he feels like a Seth Curry. If anyone heard me say Steph Curry, it was <laughs> Seth Curry. Um, I've wondered about him and it, I've like, those are the types of players where it's okay. The Thunder could easily match their salary and they might be able to include sweeteners that they're just fine giving up. But I think like a PJ Washington or Garrison Matthews is probably like more realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I've just lowered my expectations because I expect the Thunder to do literally absolutely nothing, but I'm looking like, Darius Baisley's gone anyway. Like, what can you attach to his salary to bring someone in here? And that's how I land on like a PJ Washington type. Yeah, I definitely think that if we make a move, it's going to, well, at least one of them won't involve Darius Baisley. Um, I would be very shocked to see him on this team post trade deadline. But yeah, definitely never thought about Seth Curry. Like, the thought of Shea, like, on the court with Seth Curry on one side and Isaiah Joe on the other side, like, that spacing we haven't had like since Shea's been on the team like that. He'll probably shoot like 90% at the rim if those are lineups. And then Chet's on the court next year. Like that's how mm-hmm. Shea shoots like 80, 90% at the rim. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And then PJ Washington, like we've, a lot of us have been a huge advocate for PJ Washington on this team. Uh, you know, I've, Spoiler, I'm a huge Kentucky fan. So like I I like harken back to the days of like Shea and PJ playing in college. Uh, you know, we had Hami on the team. So I'm trying to get Shea, one of his uh, college teammates, to kind of like revitalize his career once again. So uh, I was also very high on PJ, you know, coming into the draft too. So yeah, like I'm I'm all for getting PJ Washington. Um what what do you think uh what do you think the Hornets would want for PJ Washington? 
I honestly don't know. I think they're probably going to try and hold out for like first round equity. I think it's tough to get that. His season has been so up and down and he is headed towards restricted free agency. And so it's like, you know, if you wanted to, could you give up? Can you protect one of the other team's picks that are unprotected for the lottery and then have it expire? Um, and so like you're giving a conditional first plus Darius Baisley for PJ Washington. Um, that would be a package I'd consider if I'm the Thunder and I want to make the most of this season. And also that's someone you could keep. I don't know what his market's going to be in restricted free agency. It's not, I don't think he's going to get nearly as much as Grant Williams, who would be a, that should be another good fit for, for this roster, Yeah, but the Celtics aren't going to trade him. So that would probably be like, I think that's what the Hornets could get realistically. And I think it's a price that thunder could justify paying. I just don't know if the Hornets would accept it, but yeah. I think that's like the, you're not going to get, more than I think a salary and then like a protected first round pick for PJ right now. So that was the talk about what you would do now, but pretend you're Sam Presti in the off season. What would you do to turn this roster into a legit contender? And why does it involve Kevin Durant? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. That's like, that would be hysterical. If he requested trade again, and it's like, hey, do you, why don't you come play with like an actual top 10 NBA player, not the fake top 10 NBA player you think you have inside <laughs> of whoever he is. Um, so turn them into a contender by next season, like 22, right. uh, 23, 24. Say, say we become like the five seed because we're only like a game and a half or two games out of that right now. And we're like, yeah, we're knocking on the door and we're like, you know what? We could bring in another star because the Kimball Walker money goes off the books and all that stuff. Yeah, so what would you do to turn us into a legit contender for next season? Uh, swap the pick with the Clippers and draft Wemby would probably be like the way to go in that one. Done. I think you just, if you wanted to go that route, you have your cap space. And so you, you, I'd go out and I would sign Miles Turner. Like that would be the guy I'd sign and play him with Chet. And then you turn around and then it's like, do you still have, you'll probably still have based off the cap space they're supposed to have and what Miles Turner should cost. Um, I would think they would have like a little bit of wiggle room left over maybe. Um, yeah, I have them at 34, 33 million in cap space in my sheet. So Miles Turner is not going to cost you that. So you'd have some wiggle room to then turn around and say like, let's go trade for like, which star is going to come on the market. I think it needs to be the right one. I wouldn't, I don't want a Bradley Beal or a Zach Levine on this no, team. We don't either. Um, <laughs> I know a lot of people were against the idea of Trey young because he's such a stark departure from how they play. Uh, I, I get that, especially given how good Shea is on the ball. Uh, does Devin Booker get agitated in Phoenix? He'd probably be the single ideal star to play alongside Shea. That's I would predict it's not going to happen. By the way, yeah. Devin Booker's <laughs> fantastically happy in Phoenix. But what what star is going to come on the market? And then you go after that star, not indiscriminately, but when you're the Thunder and you have this much talent. And I think what's most intriguing is their best package. You do have to give up value to get value, but their best package for or most realistic package for a star is not going to have to include Shea or or uh or Chet Holmgren or you know their most valuable first round picks because they have so many first round picks and so you get to a point where like you have you could keep I would argue a lion's share if not this entire core in place like you could you could even say Josh Giddy's untouchable even though we're trading for another guard and you're still going to have like maybe one of the two most competitive offers for whatever star you're going after mm-hmm. that would be your path to contention next season is using some of that cast base. Um, and then, and maybe it's like a tandem thing where it's, Oh, miles Turner's coming because you know that uh, the thunder are going to trade for star X or whatever. But that's how I think you would have to go about making this like monster one year leap. But what I think makes it, I don't want to say possible, but if the thunder really wanted to, 
is because there aren't a lot of teams that can, you know, make so many different impact players and prospect off limits and then still turn around and field like this colossal offer for a star. The Thunder still can. I, I got a trade I want to throw at you. Um, uh, obviously, I, like, I, I'm not going to like compose a trade just in terms of a target and uh, what, what do you think about the fit on the team and if it would be possible. What if the Clippers are just like, you know what? This isn't working out, man. You know, these guys can't stay healthy. Kawhi is, Kawhi is not getting healthy, and we got to hit the reset button. Give us our stuff back. We'll give you Paul George. <laughs> <laughs> I probably wouldn't do it just because of all the injuries that Paul George has been dealing with yeah. over the years. Um, but yeah, he's a really good fit. That's who you want next to Shea is like the 1B type who's used to playing off someone else and wouldn't necessarily thrive as the number one creator. And so like, yeah, I mean, he'd be perfect, but if I'm them, I, and I'm pretty like, I embrace risk. I think too many teams in the league are risk averse. Mm -hmm. I want someone who's like not in the middle of their thirties. If it's Kevin Durant, like, okay, fine. Like that would just be, want to be hysterical, but two, it's it's Kevin Durant. Um, But like when it's sort of that tier below, like I want someone who's closer to sort of on, the same timeline um mm-hmm. it's just those players don't tend to become available but like we just kind of saw it happen with donovan mitchell um in utah and so like i'm i'm keeping like my my ears to the ground for for that or even someone like in the 27 28 or like a pascal siakam like that's someone who would be a great fit alongside chet and he's not going to cost you nearly as much as a you know a damian lillard if he comes on the market or uh a kevin durant that's for sure so um that that is the challenge though it's like you don't want to get like I think Paul George skews too far. Like, all right, now we're really accelerating the timeline here because how much longer is Paul George going to be Paul George? I've, I've got to go. i got to go fix enough of Maddie. Continue. I'll be right back. So besides the usual suspects of Wimby and Scoot, uh, who would you most like to see the Thunder draft in this next class? And maybe that range that you're looking at isn't quite as high up the board as we thought going into the season. So like, who should we be looking at? Yeah, this is like a terrible question now because I'm only going to know guys who are like close to the top of the draft. And it doesn't seem like the Thunder <laughs> might be drafting um, really around there. I think someone like, I don't know, like a, like a Noah Clowney might be sort of interesting for them. Um, there are a lot of like, I don't know. There are too many. It feels like not big enough. Um, guards in the range that I think they're going to be drafting. Like if you could end up in a, you know, are they going to be in Amen Thompson range? That would be a great fit. I think for the thunder, but I think most mocks have him going in the, the top seven. Um, so like uh, Chris Murray, I think I've actually seen him mock the thunder in thir- certain ones. So that could be someone that maybe I would see them taking a roll of dice. Very on. interesting. Uh, their range is just so turbulent right now. I mean, I guess you could say that about so many teams because of how jumbled the, the standings are, but uh, it's funny just because like, I was initially thinking of top end targets for the Thunder in the draft. When when I saw the Chet Holmgren injury, I was like, oh, like let's like look at these top five prospects. Like that's who the Thunder are gonna zero in on. And they're just not in that range. And that that's been really tough because we've been living and dying by tankathon.com and running all of those uh simulations and stuff. And it's just, you know, depending on which side of the rebuild you're on, it's become really difficult to to hit that simulate button now with how good the thunder have gotten. So we're really not very familiar. Like a guy like Cam Whitmore, he seemed like he That's... was a little higher up early in the year. Tankathon has him at nine. 
Um, so like a lot of these guys too, they're very volatile and where it seems like they're going to fall. Yeah. I think I know a little bit about Cam Whitmore and I actually thought that he was going to fall lower than seven. So that might like be a name that they could really zero in on there. Um, but look, maybe you just need the Clippers to just, you know, get continuously worse. And then you don't have to worry about scoping out guys in the, the back end of the, the lottery. That's the dream, man. Like, I mean, if, if, if the Thunder could make the play in spot and the Clippers just like, not bottom out, but you know, get to like the the twelve in the Western Conference, and so like our pick is in like the eight to nine range. Like it would just be, it's just Chef's kiss. <laughs> but um, I'll see you. So I mean, I, I guess y'all talked to the draft. Yeah, sorry about that, man. My my son, uh, his his alarm was going off, so had to take care of that. Um, but yeah, man, I think uh, think that about covers it. You know, we kept you about an hour, so I don't want to take up any more of your time. Uh, definitely appreciate you coming on. I had a blast talking to you, talking shop, and uh, you know, can't wait to see, can't wait to see you continuously uh, gassing up the OKC Thunder on your Twitter. So, uh, Dan, I'll go ahead and let you plug anything you want to plug. Uh, you know, your writing, your Twitter, your podcast. Uh, the floor is yours, sir. Uh, well, one, thank you guys so much for having me. It was a blast uh, chatting with you. And anyone who wants to follow my work, uh, my name on Twitter, at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. I'll have all my Bleacher Report and podcast stuff out there. And if you're interested in listening about the NBA uh, league as a whole, check out Hardwood Knox, at Hardwood Knox, spelled exactly as it sounds, wherever you get your podcasts on YouTube, all all that good stuff. Yes, sir. And then, uh, you know, we've, we've a five-star review for the man because, you know, Knicks fans are kind of self-sabotaging this podcast. So we got, we got to fix that Hawks up. fans now. The Trey people are <laughs> big mad about the Trey Young takes apparently. They got haters everywhere, man. Haters everywhere. But yeah, uh, definitely appreciate you coming on Dan, And, uh, we hopefully, you know, we can have you on in the future, you know, talk about, uh, s- some continued thunder success. Most definitely. Thank you guys so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Have a All good right. night. Thank you. Oh, yeah, boys. I almost forgot the sign-off. As always, (laughs) thunder up. Thunder up. (sighs) Thank you for listening to the Topic Thunder podcast. Our podcast is available to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a positive review, and follow us on Twitter, at OKC Topic Thunder. Thunder up! Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.